0: Hello and welcome to episode 68 of the Page One podcast. I'm Tarek.
1: I'm Marco. And thanks for joining us at the Page One podcast, where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing career, how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. Um, as I always say, there's a great back catalogue of previous guests there from authors to screenwriters to comic writers to video game writers to journalists, comedians. So um, there'll be definitely be some names there that you recognise. So please do check out the back catalogue. Um, but before you do that, listen to this week's episode.
0: <laughs> it's a great place to start if you're wondering where to start. Start with you, because we've got a very interesting guest today. Uh, the man that the New Yorker called the king of weird fiction, Mr. Jeff Vandermeer, um, perhaps best known for Annihilation yeah. uh, and the Southern Reach trilogy of books, which was obviously turned into a film. Um, which we chat to him about. Previous guest, yeah, yeah, and we him about that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, he's written a whole bunch of stuff. He's a prolific writer. Like he says, he's had something published every year since... He was 13 or 14 years
1: old. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, just Mm -hmm. having that that sort of, I think he calls it the hustle uh, in those early (laughs) days, um, which is something we've heard from other authors as well, isn't it? You've got to have Mm -hmm. that sort of uh, belief and get stuff out there. And uh, as he tells us, he was, uh, for a time... He was getting published more in Finland than he was in the US because of the type of stuff stuff that he was writing, which is interesting. But it shows that, you know, you've just got to try and get your work out there and someone will want to yeah, read it.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think as long as you're writing something that you enjoy, mm-hmm. you know, even if it's not your own your own home land, mm-hmm. because it'll, it'll be out there somewhere you'll find an audience for it if you're true to it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's a really fun chat we had with Jeff, um ranging from everything about how he got started in writing, how he... Did manage to get this sort of run of getting published every year, and then talking about the annihilation adaptation and what he was happy with, what he wasn't happy with, and also about his latest book, which is out this week, uh, "Hummingbird Salamander," which I've read and is a really great uh, book. It's um, as as Jeff's books go, it's maybe more um, realistic, I suppose it would be the word, or, or you That's know, weird. Yeah, yeah. Le- the, um, it's, it's a sort of uh, eco-terrorist thriller But as it's Jeff, of course, it's, it's really well written And it has some really unique and interesting ideas in it as well
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I've not actually read that myself But I'm looking forward very much to reading that this week
1: So um, we'll get straight into the podcast after a quick advert for our writer's notebook And then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat And to let you know about next week's guest But for
0: now, on with the podcast
1: The blank Page To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow.
0: But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? Every story starts with
1: page one. I read on your website that uh, you started writing when you were eight and you had your first published story when you were 14. So I take it being a writer has always been something that you've you've wanted to do.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I started out being very interested in uh, keeping lists of uh, birds when I was very young, and uh, that weirdly morphed into uh, doing a lot of uh, retelling of fables. I, I think I was, I don't know why I was drawn to that, but it's one way that I learned learned to write was basically retelling things that I was reading as a kid, and so some of the Aesop's fables with birds I would retell from memory and then kind of make them my own, and that's how I kind of started the transition from <laughs> from uh, being interested <laughs> in nature to to, uh, writing <laughs> stories. <laughs> um, that's at least one of the things that happened.
1: <laughs> Excellent. And so, so when, uh, when did you first have that sort of serious attempt at, at writing? When, when did that happen?
2: Um, I think, uh, right around when I was 11 or 12, uh, I was reading a lot of Patricia McKillop uh, novels, a uh, very underrated uh, fantasy writer. And so I, and I was also playing uh, Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> and, um, <laughs> And, uh, I started just writing, uh, I started like doing what I thought were, were things for Dungeons and Dragons that were actually bad pastiches of Patricia McKillop's novels. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I wrote a bunch of fantasy novels without really realizing it <laughs> uh, that were absolutely terrible. Um, and then when I really started, you know, refocusing my efforts, uh, I wrote a lot of poetry and then that weirdly led again to writing writing short stories and and that's where i really began to become serious about submitting submitting stuff i've been serious about the poetry but i wasn't that great a poet like i could do some things okay but but i was really drawn to to fiction as 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 the thing that that seemed to fit and work for me Uh, so i was submitting stories very early early on uh, and probably submitting stories from about the age of 13. Uh, and I, I've consistently—I'm very proud of the fact that I've consistently had something published every year since I was thirteen or fourteen. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I'm fifty-two now, um, and and I, I'm proud of that just because it also means that I've done the things necessary to sustain a career and 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 feed my creativity and stay healthy and all that. You know, obviously a lot of that is up to chance. Some things are—I've been lucky enough to have the the privilege of, of being a writer for a long time, but uh, but there are also things you can do to. To kind of you know
1: up your chances. Mm-hmm. absolutely. And I
0: suppose um, you know writing of because you've you obviously as you say you wrote a lot for small press magazines etc. Submitting stuff over over the years, and I imagine that's quite an important part trying to develop your writing skills because you're giving your practice, you're getting the kind of mindset of it's this is a job and I need to put the hours in type stuff.
2: Right, because I mean you know like I I wrote a story named Mahout called Mahout that got into Asimov Science Fiction Magazine when I was still in my teens. And uh, I couldn't figure out for the longest time why that was the story mm-hmm. um, and not the other ones. I couldn't figure out what, what the, what I had hit upon.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: a lot of times early on, you know, uh, the practice was really important because you would, I would find something that was successful, but I wouldn't know how I had done it. <laughs> and then you spend a lot of time figuring out how you did it and what, what distinguishes the stories. But then also because I was writing stuff that was meta and surreal and sometimes very out there. I'd be very careful about not uh, letting story sales at a certain point dictate what, mm-hmm. I, what I thought was successful because sometimes it was really more the constriction or the constraint of the marketplace and not anything to do with the story. I mean, a good mm-hmm. case in point are my immigrant stories, which were rejected by all and sundry for years and then come out in a book, and it's one of the most reviewed, critically acclaimed books of that year. Uh so I I've also had to find that balance and and be very analytical when I get feedback of any kind, whether it's through what's selling or not selling and so on and so forth. Um but also not, you know, not just not just this this, you know, Mm -hmm. criticism or or not take it on board at least initially and then kind of figure that out. So so what was really funny is I couldn't get published in the US Uh, with some of the surreal stories. So I was actually published in Finland quite a lot and in Europe in translation, (laughs) which uh, which I love because I gained all these connections uh, that I wouldn't have otherwise.
1: Well, I mean, I was going to ask about that because your work is is famous for being quite hard to categorise. In fact, I think Mm. some people have given it its own genre of new weird, I think I (laughs) I saw it described as. um, um, uh, And... As you've alluded to there, that obviously can be difficult to try and get in front of or get publishers to get on board with, I assume. I mean, was that a struggle early on, or is it still a struggle to some extent?
2: It's, um, uh, you know, there, there's there's two answers. One is that the, the anchor of Annihilation, having done so well, has opened up such a broad readership that even when I do something like Dead Astronauts, which I think inherently... Because it's so experimental and almost like prose poetry in places is, is going to have a natural smaller maximum audience. And some of the other things I do that that maximum audience is still being reached. Mm-hmm. So it still winds up being fairly significant. Like dead astronauts
3: mm-hmm.
2: to my surprise <laughs> has earned out its advance. Um, so I'm very, I'm very fortunate, uh, because of that, uh, before that point, it was really. Um, a lot more hustle involved. I mean, I was a full-time writer for seven years before Annihilation hit, and I'm almost more proud of that uh, than anything that came after because that required a lot of hustle yeah. <laughs> and a lot of knowing what was going on at the street level and mm-hmm. responding to it and diversifying the kinds of things I wrote. And I learned a lot about writing during that period because I took on projects, uh, not necessarily because I had to, but things that doing but i wouldn't necessarily have done them if i didn't need the money yeah um, which is not are not mutually exclusive it's just you know if you're lucky you get to pick and choose a little bit in that regard um so yeah yeah that's um that's, so, so so yeah i mean a new weird as a as a, a, a idea you know I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that for a very short time publishers in the early part of the century thought that putting new weird on a book would sell it <laughs> 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 and in an actual fact what, what happened with um what actually was happening was that China Miéville was selling books, um, and they thought everybody else under that, that label, if they could stick that label on it, would sell books too. And um, I sold just enough books to still be published by a major publisher during that period. Maybe because of the new weird label, maybe in spite of it, I don't know. Um, but I'm very grateful for that. At the same time, I'm very grateful not to be labeled new weird for the most part mm-hmm. uh, now.
0: <laughs> and is it is that kind of interesting um, interplay between you know a writer wanting to write the stories in the genre that interests them versus writing something which is maybe more, you know classically kind of commercial and and is it important to you that you or an another writer should write what they want to write and as as opposed to trying to write something that they think will sell?
2: Well, I think um for me everything is personal on, on, on some level and um there are there are structures and stories that come to me that just happen to be more naturally uh commercial because they more naturally fit or seem to mimic certain uh, modes of fiction or tropes or genres. Mm-hmm and then there are others that don't. And so one reason why I I run so far, so hard away from labels is because I know that the next thing coming down the line may be totally different. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. for example, one of the funniest things, and it wasn't actually funny at the time, was that uh, because I wrote something called the Steampunk Bible, which was really me as a journalist investigating Steampunk, I got tagged as a Steampunk <laughs> um, writer. So when my noir, um, hard-boiled, uh, fungal fantasy uh, Finch <laughs> came out. It was labeled as steampunk by like Amazon and stuff, and 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 although it did well, you know, in general, you know, there were a lot of confused readers of <laughs> steampunk. It's like, no, no, it's not because I'm not a steampunk writer, um, just like I'm not a, a new weird or weird writer sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hummingbird Salamander, the new one, is probably the, the closest to uh, realism uh, that I would write. And so, thankfully, I've been twist and turny enough on these labels that I think that that's
1: still acceptable. And that, that from speaking to other authors as well, that's something that is, you know, I think, I think it's very easy to be pigeonholed and there can, it seems to, from speaking to other authors that there can be a sort of pressure to stay within that, within a specific genre, because, you know, if it's a, you know, Stephen King book then they know what a Stephen King book is so they want to pick it up kind of a thing Um, so have you ever felt that sort of pressure to say right I I need to stay within my boundaries here or is it just I want to write, I want to tell the stories I want to tell and that's it?
2: It's a a complicated issue because I tend to have five or six different novel ideas at the same time and, and what happens is I have notebooks full of the initial notes for those novels and then it might be like six or seven years gestation time I can feel passionately about three or four novels at the same time. So, um, for example, when, uh, uh, we were deciding my agent and I was deciding what to pitch to, uh, FSG before, uh, after Annihla- the annihilation series, um, there was a choice between, uh, something called the book murderer, which I was really passionate about at the time about this kind of nutso guy who goes around like literally blowing up books cause he hates books so much. <laughs> and it was, all about like book culture and there was a whole whole rant that he did about blurbs and how incestuous they are and i mean i i thought it was pretty funny but it was a choice between that and born and uh, i felt equally passionate about both of them and thankfully my agent said i think born is the one we should pick <laughs> the heartwarming story of a, a mother and her strange child <laughs> rather than the the one about the psychopath going around blowing up books, which I still, I like it, but I'm very thankful. <laughs> so, so there are times when you choose something, uh, I choose something to work on because my editor likes it better than something else, knowing that I can always go back to the mm-hmm. thing to find some venue to, to publish it. But the other thing that kicks in is that I, I absolutely just can't work on something that I'm not passionate about yeah. my subconscious shuts down and I don't finish it. So, you know, there are times when I feel like there's a danger, like when the annihilation movie came out and, and that became very, very commercial um, to some degree. And uh, I think my subconscious said, okay, the next thing you write has to be completely mm-hmm. non-commercial, like yeah. by any standard. And I think that's where dead astronauts came from. was my subconscious saying, you know, you need to protect your creativity. You need to do it by going back to you know the absolute most personal personal thing you can write
0: it's funny because it's i mean annihilation was was a massive hit when it came out as a, as a book as the, as the trilogy and then obviously further down the line the film version came out and and that must have introduced a whole bunch of other readers to your work um and and would you class annihilation as your kind of breakthrough moment because prior to that you'd you'd won a lot of awards you'd you, know, you were. You were a big name and stuff, but but was that the moment you think that more people were made aware of you, or do you think it was just a kind of slow kind, kind, of, kind of progress up a hill?
2: Well, I mean, I think the thing that was always a little uh, frustrating to me is that I knew, you know, I, I like I said, these books have usually a long gestation period, and I even though I didn't know, of, you know, Annihilation came to me pretty suddenly, considering the way I usually work, I knew I was going to write. In more realistic modes because the sudden reach trilogy is still not set in an imaginary world. And mm-hmm. so there's less of a barrier for some general readers. So, you know, it was, it was always frustrating for me working on the Ambergris books, which I love, uh, before that, uh, knowing that, you know, that I can also do these other things, but they're, they're just not the projects I'm working on right now. And, and so I, I had a feeling with Annihilation that it would reach a wider audience just because there's, there's that element of like you know if i'm in an airport and we i strike up a conversation you know not this last year but um <laughs> and and someone asks what i do you know before i had to say well i write stories about intelligent mushroom people <laughs> in, <laughs> in a strange city um infected by fungus you know <laughs> and um, you know i can try to you know <laughs> i can try to pitch that out of life but for annihilation all i'd say is i write eco thrillers about people who, you know, find this strange thing in the wilderness, the Mm -hmm. end. Um, And so I do think that does make uh, some difference, especially, you know, it would be different if I was somebody who wrote, only wrote fantasy all the time Yeah. and then had a label attached to me. And then that kind of helped, you know, but, but uh, in this case, getting to a place that was more realism, I think, I think did it. So the short answer is I felt like I was a successful writer. And then when Annihilation hit it big, (laughs) there were all these articles about, cult writer, underground writer. <laughs> <laughs> like, underground? I'm in a house above ground. I'm not in a or in a cave, you know, but, but anyway, so, so it, was, it was kind of disconcerting to me to have, like, an yeah. interview go, like, how do you feel about having been basically a failure your whole life, but now you put it in <laughs> I mean, one guy actually put it to me that way, and I was like, seriously? <laughs>
0: That's a bold You Do I
2: think it's a it's an accomplishment to be a full time writer for seven years without a bestseller? That's <laughs> actually more impressive. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a good point. Absolutely, absolutely.
2: So, so it was a little disconcerting, and I had to get used to that. Um, but to, if you want the actual scale of it, you know, this is the difference between selling like fifteen thousand copies of a book in the U.S., which is enough to for you to keep being published with a major publisher, and selling a quarter of a million. You know, mm-hmm. which is then I think now there's like over over a million copies of the Southern Reach trilogy in print wow. just in the US. Wow! Um, so that that that's what the, the magnitude is. Um, uh, I think.
1: And was- obviously, the, just touching on the movie briefly, um, how involved were you in that? Because obviously, the, it was it was a very different story, but. At the same time, we had Alex, we actually had Alex Garland on the podcast, and I said to him at the time that it, the 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 film gave me the same sense of reading the book, even though it was very very different.
2: Yeah, um, uh, not not much at all. Um, I'm, I'm a big believer uh, in uh, you know when there are adaptations and there's somebody involved who kind of an auteur, although I know he doesn't consider himself that, he kind of is, Um, letting them, you know, let their vision be the thing that plays out. Uh, At the same time, it was the first option that had actually gone gone anywhere. So I was learning the ropes, and I, I have this thing about the first time around, I like to just listen, observe, and become an expert on the process so the next time I can give feedback that's useful and know where to give that feedback. I think if I had it to do over, I would have been more adamant about um, the fact that the environmental themes and the casting had to be truer to the book. Um, And then that, that spiraled out of my control very quickly in in very strange ways. Um, At the same time, there's this irony that (laughs) regardless of whether the the movie is faithful or not, it brought all these additional readers to my work, uh, to my environmental uh, writings and, uh, you know, therefore had this big impact in terms of how I can impact the environment that wouldn't have been there without the film. Uh, so, you know, I take it as a learning experience. Uh, on Born with AMC, I'm much more hands on, uh, much more direct about, you know, what, you know, I feel like has to be faithful, mm-hmm. uh, and, and what doesn't, uh, and trying to leave enough room for the people who are going to be involved in writing and, 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 and filming that to, to be creative. Uh, while still feeling
0: like it's faithful. Yeah, so so Bourne um, is being made in, 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 into a show um, at, at, at the moment. And and to have that kind of involvement with Bourne that you didn't have with, with Annihilation, is that something which you kind of said up, up front, you know, before they made the show, that I want to have a bigger role, or is that something that just naturally happened?
2: Up front, before we did the auction, I made it quite clear that the casting would have to be faithful. Um, otherwise, there would be a big problem. And a big public problem but at the same time the people when the amc people when they came to me were absolutely lovely and understood the material and i don't i don't think at any stage would they ever have even thought of not being faithful to that and the environmental themes in the book so you know i it's been a very different experience uh in in many ways and that's no you know diss of garland whose work i in general love quite quite deeply Mm -hmm. um but uh but I'm very happy to be in this, this particular mode uh, and with a couple of the other projects that have that have come forward too
0: and um and there's quite a lot of your books which um which we've touched on already which kind of tackle important topics um which are obviously important to you such as climate change um ecosystem et etc and is that something which you find important to address in in your work you know to, to use your work as a platform to kind of get your opinions and your ideas about this kind of idea out there for other people to talk about and think about
2: well i just think it's become more and more urgent and it's something that's in our everyday. and so it's not there there is the intentionality of and i'm a big believer in 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 telling my subconscious there are things that i want to emphasize and then it just kind of comes out naturally so i think i have definitely been saying to my subconscious and i I know it sounds a little mystical but you know really it's just (laughs) part of your brain working when you're not awake um you know, that I want to keep working in this mode, but then also, you know, intention, intentionality counts too. Uh, in terms of like, you know, I'll talk to an, a radical environmentalism class and they'll be like, annihilation was motivating in this way, but we want something. We also want literature that's much more direct about the, the problem we're, we're facing. And I think something like hummingbird ha- uh, salamander
1: mm-hmm. comes
2: out of that, which is to say that in naturally the story of treating in a thriller format, uh, with this, Particular kind of protagonist um, who's very naive about environmental issues. It allows me to do more directly deal with climate crisis and environmental degradation issues and eco-terrorism, you know, or whatever you want to call it, uh, and and wildlife trafficking. Uh, just because the mystery at the center of it revolves around that, so any information I put in is actually hypercharged um, plot. It's not. It's not just inert exposition. So I th- find that kind of an interesting effect.
1: Well, it, it, that's a good point to talk about Hummingbird Salamander. Um, it, uh, as we record this, it's out next month in April. Um, do you want to just tell us, tell the listeners a little bit about that book?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, basically, the, the premise is that the narrator, who never gives her name, but uh, she, she gives a, a false name of Jane Smith, uh, one day, you know, she's a securities consultant in a Pacific Northwest city, and one day a barista at her coffee shop hands her a note that has a, a key inside of it to a, a storage unit outside of town. And inside the storage unit, uh, she finds a taxidermy hummingbird and a note indicating that there's a salamander as well somewhere. And it's given to her by a dead woman who, when she researches it, uh, turns out to have been labeled either an eco-terrorist or, or environmental activist, depending on your point of view. Uh, that she doesn't know, uh, and she's she's haunted by this, but she's also at a point in her life where she knows something's wrong with, she's just not comfortable with where she is in her job, her family, everything else, and so this probably has more of an impact on her than it would for some other character or some other person, and so she goes down this rabbit hole trying to investigate, you know, why was I given this? Uh, and by the time she decides that she doesn't want to know anything about it because there's a lot going on that, that could actually you know, endanger her life, it's too late. It's too late because, you know, in this modern world we live in, as soon as you reach out, as soon as you even do a Google search, someone knows about it. <laughs> right. Uh, and the wrong people know about it real fast. And I, I think what, what I also was interested in writing about is, is the ways in which if you're an expert in something, like security consultant, for example, you do take the right measures, but you also kind of feel like you know what you're doing. So by the time you realize you don't, you know, you're almost in some ways perhaps not as cautious, uh, mm-hmm. in the ways that you should be because you feel like you know it all. Um, and then, you know, I just, um, it just kind of like spirals out from there. And there's some scenes I'm, I'm really proud of, uh, including one in a burning warehouse that, <laughs> that I, I don't think people will, will soon forget. <laughs>
1: And, and just going back to what you were saying before, I mean, obviously it is, it is a, a thriller almost. And do you think, t- you know, telling a story like that, raising these issues that you want to do, but framing it in that way is a way of getting a wider audience to, to engage with it?
2: Well, I mean, it really all uh, comes down to what the character in the story needs. So in this particular case, given a certain bluntness of the character uh and in their expression uh it felt to me also with the story that was involved that this was the right structure for it it could easily have wound up being another dead astronaut um depending on who the character was and 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 what some details of the story were um and but the thing is i'm also fairly uh comfortable with this format i mean the the um The novel Finch is basically a noir, hard-boiled mystery, and it has some beats in in common, some progressions in common with a thriller. Uh, so, so I, and, and and I did a lot of research on thrillers and mysteries for that, that kind of became internalized. So it felt very comfortable to me. It also felt comfortable to me to pivot that way, you know? I mean, I tend to want to do something very different after the last Mm -hmm. thing that I've done, uh, or I get bored, uh, too easily.
0: And I kinda of wanted to ask a little bit about about that process of of writing a book and, and from going from one to the next. And you know, do you when you sit down to write a book or to or to have an idea, do you do you plan it all out in advance? Do you kind of just say, actually I've I've just written a thriller and I want to write something else and just see what comes out or or is it a very deliberate process of sitting down and thinking this is the type of story I want to write now?
2: Um, I think I just begin to uh get the, the right sense of the structure.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I'm, I don't really usually, I mean, I just use the word plot, but I usually think in terms of character and structure, and I think of the novel as a structure that the character is moving through. Yeah. Um, and once I have an idea of that scaffolding, uh, and it may, it may not even be scaffolding that the reader sees, like uh, Acceptance, I thought of as having the structure of a starfish with the biologist's return in the center and everything else radiating out from that. Well, if you mm-hmm. actually were to, to, to write down the structure of that book, that's not what it is. But but that's kind of thematically yeah. how I thought what was important. Um, but in terms of actually like outlining and things like that, it depends on the book. So for Shriek, which is about the history of this imaginary city for 60 years, I needed to have actual timeline mm-hmm. of that history. And then the scenes with the characters as a separate timeline, juxtapose with what's going on on a historical level, and then what other characters are doing as well. Uh, for Finch, it was set over seven days, so what I did is I just had a list of, of, of the week, <laughs> and then an idea of where Finch would be in his investigation on those days, and then writing the scenes was kind of like improv. I knew Finch was gonna go ask this guy questions, but I didn't know what he was gonna say back before I wrote the scene. I just basically made sure that I knew a lot about the characters he was going to talk to so that in them responding to Finch, it wouldn't just be to move the story forward. Mm-hmm. It would be whatever that person would actually say to him. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's kind of an outline. That's kind of a structure. Uh, but I don't do a very I, – I need a loose structure uh, sometimes. Sometimes I need to be in the moment exploring as I go along. With Hummingbird Salamander, which is very um, in the moment and immediate, I I needed to know eventually kind of where I would end up, Mm -hmm. Um, but I needed to be in the moment with Jane while she's she's investigating this. But then I also had to have this overlay that I added later of knowing that Jane writes this account at a certain point in the narrative and that she knows some things before we do and that it would be perfectly natural in writing it to, to kind of allude to things that we don't yet know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's that overlay as well. Um, but I don't do a, a, a real detailed out.
1: And uh, are you someone that tries to get the sort of first draft of something complete and then go back and rework it? Or do you revise quite heavily as you go? What's your process?
0: Well,
2: again, it, it, can, it, it can be very different for, for each novel. But, uh, you know, when I had a day job, uh, it was sometimes 60 or 70 hours a week. And I had to learn to just write when I had the time, which might be just 20 or 30 minutes. And I had, for that reason, to learn to write non-sequentially on books that would accommodate that. Uh, so I don't necessarily write in scene order. Right. I think it's more important to write the scene I'm most passionate about. Mm-hmm. So long as I'm not writing a book where that's going to really throw things off, I have to do a lot of revision later on that scene just because yeah. I wrote it out of order. Uh, and so some books I do have to write in order, uh, but the thing that's most important to me is getting the first 10 to 20 pages right in terms of the tone, the texture, the style to reflect the character who is telling the story or who we're seeing through the eyes of in third person. And once I get that down and know that that will always come back to me, then I, I continue to write the draft mm-hmm. because that means my rough draft is going to be much better all the way through because the voice is consistent. Yeah. Uh, and then any, any revision, you know, there may be still a lot of revision, but it's not going to be a lot of onerous, you know, reworking.
0: I mean that because I I I've tried to do that before write something out of sequence, and I struggle with that. And I don't know if that's because I maybe approach it more from a plot point of view as opposed to character. Because I imagine, if, uh, do you kind of approach things more as a, from a character perspective if you're writing out of view? Because uh, whereas if if you're if it's a plot point of view, you, some things might change. Early on, and you might need to change it, but if it's a character stuff, you can kind of, if it's a scene where you know someone has to react a certain way to something, you can kind of do that early on. Is that, is that fair to say? I think it really,
2: you know, when I say that I'm writing scenes out of order, basically I'm, I'm writing those scenes that I'm fairly sure are not going to change too much, okay. uh, still. So I'm still being kind of selective. Um, but I'm also trying to get the, the texture and the tone right. So I'm not so concerned if, <clears throat> what someone says plot wise in a scene or, of course, happens is, is, is going to change. I'm more concerned about getting the right detail, the right detail for the character, the, the, the right, uh, interiority for the character voice. And if other stuff changes, that, that to me is not a, a huge, a huge edit. Um, and then also, you know, I'm putting these scenes into, in chronological order into a document. Mm-hmm. So by the time I start writing, for real, I might have 30, 30,000 words of fragments and half scenes. So I'm not trying to force it by writing a whole uh, scene. Okay, I
0: see. Right? Okay.
2: So, but if I know that, you know, say Jane is going to meet, uh, go back and talk to the barista who gave her the note, you know, there's no harm in me writing that out of sequence, uh, just to see what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And sometimes yeah. what I'm doing is I'm writing it to, to see if it's even a scene I need to write. Uh, and then also, um, that scene, I might write it completely wrong, but that gives me an idea of how to write it when I actually do write it in sequence. Yeah. Uh, so, so that actually saves me time. Uh, I don't think efficiency is really something you should worry about in fiction, it's not the point. Uh, but I do, I don't like to, to when I'm actually working on the full rough draft, write a lot of stuff that I'm not gonna use. So the way I get around that by, is by doing it ahead of time.
0: That's interesting, so it's, it's almost like you're using the, using writing these kind of scenes as a kind of rough plan, then you before you do that, as your first draft, and then you can pick and choose what stuff from that earlier work you did if you want to put into it or not. That's quite and, interesting. And,
2: and, and meanwhile, doing that is telling me something about the character because yeah, I, I, yeah. I'm trying to uh, method act the character. You know, sometimes that's also more, more uh, severe, and that I will actually go around during the day trying to react like I think the character would act not me, <laughs> mm-hmm. just to get a sense. And sometimes I will get oh, scenes cool. out of that, out of the most yeah. mundane, mundane stuff. Um, the most famous one is probably in Authority, where the director of the Southern Reach is extremely paranoid, and mm-hmm. he sees a mosquito squashed inside of his windshield, and he thinks someone's been in his vehicle, even though he probably just forgot that he squashed a mosquito reflexively. And, you know, that, that scene came out of getting into my car in a paranoid mode, trying to channel this guy and seeing the same thing and thinking the same thing that I might not have thought if I wasn't trying to be that person. Uh, and I think it's actually a very effective routine scene in, in book.
1: Yeah. That's a very interesting way of, way of doing it, actually. To, yeah. To, to yeah. I like these that. characters, And do, do you ever get, um, you know, do you ever get stuck when you're writing these stories? Do you ever get to a point where you're like, I don't know where this is going. And if so, how do you, how do you get beyond that?
2: Well, um, you know, I think it helps to not be worried too much about whether I'm creating final material. Hmm. Uh, and that's where the non-sequential thing helps a lot. It, it helps me not be stuck, even though I know I might not use everything that I'm doing. But sometimes I'll, I'll also just, I'll just do things, like I said, like be in character and record what happens during the day. And some of that will stick. Or I'll look, I'll find a different perspective. Uh, like I'm working on this novella subject. 680 and I ran out of scenes to write and then I realized that this guy who's surveilling this house would have to also file reports uh, to his superior so I started writing those reports and some of those reports, that sparked something so mm-hmm. so a lot of that stuff may not actually make it into the story but it, it, it helped jumpstart mm-hmm. it again. What I would do if I got totally stuck is I would realize that there's some something that I haven't yet resolved that absolutely has to be resolved before I can continue writing and I would just go to another project and that's one of the great things about my problem being that I have too many novels and ideas uh, to work on and not too few. So if I get stuck on something, I will just work on something else.
1: Cool. And you, you've also written, as as well as uh, your novels uh, and nonfiction, you've also written a couple of books to help writers as well. You've, you've written Wonder Book and, uh, I think, Book Life. Um, you know, what, what made you want to do that?
2: Well, you know, I I do love good writing books, um, and I especially love the ones that are not prescriptive, that mm-hmm. give you various ways of doing it, because yeah. that's the way I teach as a writer, too, at workshops, is I'm always trying to first understand what the writer is trying to do, which requires also, like, meeting with and asking questions of the writer before I actually even see their manuscript, um, and being sympathetic to that, not trying to impose what I think their (laughs) writing should be, but trying to help whatever it is that they want to do.
3: Um,
2: While still, you know, providing criticism, uh, you know, if something's going wrong. uh, But when it comes to writing books or any of the nonfiction I do, I I look first to see, is there a need for this? So with book life, I was frustrated because there was no writing book that dealt with all aspects of a writing life in the context of a modern internet existence. Excuse me. And so I thought that a book that integrated all of that instead of just having one little section, which is always what cracked me up to be a writing book, to be a section called the internet. <laughs> it's like, well, that's not really how it works anymore. guys. It's actually <laughs> you know a part of our career in a very big way. Um, so that's why I wrote that book is, is a, it didn't exist. Um, and, and I also wanted to write something that was, you know, pretty much geared for somebody who has a, a first book coming out, you know, really, I mean, there's stuff you can glean if you don't, but there's very few books that are just for somebody who has a book coming out. It's mm-hmm. mostly for writers, you know, learning crafts or, or a career to get to that point. And then with wonder book, there was no fully illustrated full color guide to writing out there. There were a couple of things by like, uh, uh, Linda or Olivia Barry, uh, that, you know, she does these great collages that also teach you some writing things, but they're not a, it's not a systematic guide. Um, and so when steampunk Bible did so well, Uh, Abrams Image came back to me and said, hey, is there anything else you want to do? I said, how about a fully illustrated writing book? And the only thing is you have to let me use my own designer and just give me all the money and I'll bring it to you camera ready. (laughs) 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 No, are you kidding me? (laughs) But they said yes. Um, And it was almost a disaster because we were were doing things that, quite frankly, had never been done before in terms of trying to visualize, provide visually, uh, convey certain creative writing concepts. And of course, in doing that, there are certain things that you try that just aren't going to work out. So if I hadn't had a designer with a friend who I was working with directly, the book would never have gotten done mm-hmm. if it had been in-house because we had to abandon stuff. We had we abandoned like 150 pages of material because there were certain things that turned out you couldn't actually <laughs> visualize <laughs> that way. You had to put them in writing. Um, and then the designer I was working with is a great genius kind of pop artist, uh, Jeremy Zerfoss, but he'd never done a book before. So the first, layout i saw he thought it'd be cool to have the page number be in a different place on every page <laughs> things like that so so there was a point about six months in that i was like oh my god there's not going to be a book i have a shovel of eccentric things <laughs> may or may not be pages but there's no book and then it gradually coalesced as we cut some of the more eccentric stuff and there's still some stuff that's maybe a little too eccentric in there, but but I love the fact that we went for it, and it's if it's over the top in some places, that's better than not being ambitious about it.
0: Yeah, Definitely. and um, I, I suppose we have to ask the question that we're asking all the authors at, at the moment, which is lockdown, and yeah. how has that been for you in terms of your writing? Has it been helpful or has it been a hindrance? You know, I, you know, I have to be
2: honest. The other part of of childhood was, was enduring. My parents, uh, as we called my sister and I called it 10 year divorce, um, which was this awful, horrible period as a kid of dealing with, with that in the background. And so, you know, that's another reason why I turned to writing, I think as an escape. Uh, and so when things go bad, I always go to the writing. So in some ways I, you know, I, I lost myself in the writing as much as I could while trying to engage with the world and be abuse at the same time. But I was also helped by the fact that in Hummingbird Salamander, there is a certain isolation as she goes down the rabbit hole and a certain amount of paranoia and and, and whatnot that I just channeled from what was going on between the elections and the pandemic <laughs> into the novel. So again, kind of method acted it out and it was actually... Great therapy to try to get through it, and I was just lucky that the project accommodated this. That a different kind of project, like Born, would would not have. Um, also, I do garden a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never <see> Twitter <laughs> apparently, you know, support about thousand birds in the yard. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and is is it going to affect the launch, or you know, mm-hmm. are you going to have a a different kind of launch for it?
2: um in the uh i i don't i don't see things changing as much there was a point at which uh i thought things were going to change like i was originally told for the u.s that the maximum number of events because they're all virtual and anyone can sign up is about four um but then that changed as kind of the the mood of the country changed but then also there was this realization that there were still very uh loyal audiences and readers for Particular independent bookstores, and that a lot of these bookstores have very robust uh, outreach to those readers. And so, more and more, it's looking more like a traditional tour. I think there's going to be more like 20 events, but uh, virtual. Uh, and it's just that the I think the the beats and the pacing of the events uh, change. Like, I really want to be available for the event 10 minutes ahead of time so I can be in the chat room you know, doing what I would normally do if I was in a live event, which is I would be kind of chatting with the audience and just kind yeah. of them up before I actually do my reading and anecdotes or whatever. Um, and, and, and also doing more interaction that way during the thing. And, you know, there'll probably be more giveaways and things and, and, and it'll it'll just look a little different uh, uh for me at least than, than, than your normal in-person event where they usually pair you with somebody, which we'll still be doing, but we'll be doing like other things in between, like, one of the one of the events, uh, one of the prizes, and it's not really ruining it because you don't know which one. Uh, the local wildlife rescue people are going to bring an owl over, <laughs> so not really that, cool. you know, just for like five minutes, you know. Yeah. So I think the pacing of these things has to change because if you just if you just watch or or have to as an author do that many events that are exactly the same yeah. format, yeah, um, just because that's right. what usually works for live events, hmm, not not a good thing. <laughs>
1: And, and yeah especially with virtual events it can be you can be talking at a screen and the lack of interaction even in the you know seeing people's yeah. faces and things like that can, can make a you sort of feel you're speaking into the void something I'm, like,
2: I'm still yeah. going to miss that I really feed off of that you know I usually do like sometimes I'll do call and responses like on the Finch tour where Ambergris is destroyed they all shouted I blame Vandermeer at one point uh, <laughs> for uh, porn <laughs> um it was something about more the giant flying bear. <laughs> oh, I was I believe in flying bears or something and I recorded that and put it online. So I like to have fun with the audience and it's yeah, you know, it cool. kind of a challenge to try to still do that in the virtual environment.
0: Cool. And uh and and what's up, what's up next thing? I definitely read online somewhere a while ago now, though I think that there was more Southern Reach books coming up. But is that something which is still in the pipeline? Yeah, um, I, I have a,
2: a few projects, uh, out in, um, October is Theo Ellsworth's adaptation of my short story, Strange, uh, sorry, not Strange Word, <laughs> uh, Secret Life, uh, for Drawn and Quarterly, my, my first graphic novel, although Theo's such a awesome. genius. What happened is he just did it all from his head, including the script from his head, and then just drew it out. And I think there's been very few edits, and I didn't have to write a script or anything. So. <laughs> I really, had time to go, but I was really happy. That's <laughs> you know? <a> dream bit. <laughs> wow! Um, but then also, yes, um, and I'm working on it slowly because I'm very suspicious of like follow-ups like this. It's like, mm-hmm. not I don't want to cash in on annihilation. I want to write something that actually makes sense. So, Absolution is the novel I'm working on, and it's actually set in that area that the border comes down in uh, during that last week. Uh, although it does shift back and forth in time. And I realized there was a lot of stuff about the science and science, science and science brigade that you didn't know and a lot about as i call them old piano fingers jim uh for those who remember a particularly horrifying scene from acceptance um who probably is working for uh control and and things like that so so once that began to percolate i was like oh this is actually a really interesting story that would advance the the, the plot of other of, of books but you know not in a way that that like gives you all the answers or uh, tries to cash in on it. Um, and then I have a, a novel called Drone Love, uh, which is uh, set in the future on an island where there's a monastery of drones, and um, all the oceans are basically just plastic, but some creatures have learned to live in them. Uh, mm-hmm. and they're these giant, uh, creatures that are, uh, escapees from, uh, biotech operas. Uh, and so. Through their pores comes the song that they were supposed to be projecting onto the opera. So you always know they're coming, but they're still so ferocious that they usually kill you, uh, even though you get to listen to some great music while it happens. Uh, so <laughs> I'm really looking forward to that. And then I'm writing an a all original uh, story collection as well.
1: Awesome. A, well, it sounds like keeping quite busy. A lot the yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After having I, I really enjoyed the Southern Reach book so Absolution's very much um high but on my list to uh, okay. to 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 read at some point.
1: Um would you ever want to write something other than prose, you know, or 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 non-fiction as well, but you know, would you want to write a screenplay or anything like that? Is that something that would interest you?
2: Yeah, um, I've written some treatments, like I did a treatment I really liked for uh, what was going to be a scanners TV series, (laughs) Um, but luckily some of my ideas, like I had the idea that some scanners could do depth charges, like they could, you could protect yourself from another scanner, but they still know the general area you were in, and some of them could actually like drop flaming pianos or whatever near you and hope that they could get you and <laughs> <laughs> maybe it was a little over the top but i use that <laughs> idea in my young adult novel Peculiar carol in a different way so it's something that got out. So I, I have done some treatments what i'm wary of is doing a full script because i don't really know how to do that like i can read a book on it but what i really love is like with *Born*. I, I you know if this goes to script then and I get to see how that script was translated from the novel and then I can mimic that. Yeah. I'm very good. At, I need to, to see the thing first and then kind of pull it apart. Um, but I do want to do a script for Finch. I would love to do a script for Finch. I feel like it's already set up that way with the structure. Uh, and the other important thing about it is I want to write a sequel to Finch, but I always thought of it as a graphic novel because the sequel would probably have 10 viewpoint characters that I just don't, I just don't want to do in a novel, but would work in kind of a camera eye view Mm -hmm. uh, for for a graphic novel. But then with these other opportunities come up, it's like, oh, maybe it could actually be instead of film or a teleplay or something.
1: Cool. That that sounds great. What was the last book that you read? Uh, I'm reading like,
2: six or seven books at once, which is why this is a difficult <laughs> question. Um, <laughs> I, oh my God.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. A lot of, every time we ask this, it seems to stump people. <laughs> I think it's
2: a pandemic thing. Yeah. Um, that, 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 that my propensity for not remembering names in the first place. Um, I can say that I'm in the middle of reading uh, Eccentric Spaces, uh, a nonfiction book about architecture, because I'm, I'm writing a, a story uh, about a place that has a very strange architectural uh, feature to it, um, but actually oh. figures into the plot. Cool. Um, so I'm reading that.
0: Is, that. is that like a House of Leaves type setting? <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, I, without going too much into it, uh, it's the story I mentioned earlier where there's the guy surveilling a house. Oh, the yeah. house was built by the same architect and so he doesn't know that they're actually connected and just other, other kinds of weird
0: stuff. Cool. Oh, cool, nice. And uh, what about the last film that you watched?
2: Well, I watched the uh, small axe films uh, oh, yeah. uh, on Amazon, uh, and I mean, the, the guy director's name is going to escape me, but they're absolutely brilliant. Steve McQueen. I mean, yeah. Steve McQueen, yeah, they're absolutely brilliant, brilliant stuff. Brilliant pacing was just a joy to watch those, and horrifying in places, obviously, mm-hmm. and painful, but also really, really beautiful the films.
1: Oh, yes. And And uh, the last TV show that you watched or are watching?
2: um we're watching uh uh the original utopia
1: all right <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah yeah i've
2: never watched that That's <laughs> and, so just... and we started watching it because we started watching the american one and It was just crap yeah. i mean they got this scene about disease. they, they like they, the american one like kills off a character really early that doesn't get killed off in utopia right i mean maybe they do later but for no reason, I could tell. But mm. then when I started watching the British one, I was like, oh, I see. In their heads, they thought they'd given us this information, but they hadn't.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, I, I watched I watched. It the, was a
2: little bit of a disaster from my viewpoint, but I really loved the British one uh, for its kind of harsh cruelty. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> no, I, I watched the original one and really enjoyed it, but then I watched the... I think it was just the first episode of the American yeah. one, and I gave up on it because it was...
2: Just, yeah. We made four episodes in, but then when they started actually dealing with the disease outbreak and it, and, and it was so so unrealistic, and here we are in the middle of a disease yeah. outbreak. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> there wasn't. You should have been able to look outside your window.
0: And The very, very last thing we do is a quick fire either or. Uh, yeah. There's no right answer apart from one. <laughs> uh, and the first one is early bird or night owl. Early bird.
1: Um, fancy restaurant or takeaway?
2: Well, at this point, fancy restaurant. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. so.
0: Uh, TV or cinema, perhaps a similar vein.
2: Uh, you mean like going to a movie theater? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think TV for the foreseeable future. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough.
1: Uh, and then the last one uh, real book or e book
2: real book i can't actually read novels in e books i can read some non-fiction online but i can't read a novel
0: well i think the take-home message for me for that chat was that there's more books in the southern reach series coming yeah it's
1: uh, it's interesting that he's revisiting that after after yeah. doing the, the trilogy but it, it does sound like you know he's he's only going back to it because he's got an idea that he thinks is yeah, going to work there. Yeah,
0: because it's it's a it's a trilogy that um, it kind of feels like it wraps up nicely. There's you know it, it's it's a it's a it's a really weird trilogy, but it's a fantastic read and and I'm glad that he's only going back. I'm glad there's more of it, and I'm also glad he's only going back to it because he feels he's found the, mm-hmm. the story for it, and it's not like a kind of. Being forced to write it for the for the sake of it, so and, I'm very excited.
1: And and just on the southern reach, I thought it was really interesting when he was talking about his the way he develops his characters and mm-hmm. he'll sort of almost method act um, as the characters sometimes to try and get into their head and see what it was. And that scene he was talking about where he gets into the car and he sees a mosquito squashed on the on the That's windscreen, right. and he, because he was in the the mindset of that character, he sort of brought that paranoia and what would that character think about that? And all. Yeah. So it's a really interesting uh, a way of, of, you know, building out your characters in a realistic way I think.
0: Yeah, because I think sometimes sort of find it's very easy for your characters to become very samey because they're you know, when you're just kind of broad brush stuff on the page that you're just doing as you, as you write. Mm-hmm. I think it's something where you can get out of your own headspace a little bit and, and explore characters a great way of doing it. I've tried it myself a few times but Um, Only with sex scenes
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear Uh, And we were doing so well Tarek (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well uh, thanks very much to Jeff For coming on to the podcast We really appreciate him taking the time to come on to the podcast And as I said at the start Hummingbird Salamander is out this week Um I think in the US and uh, elsewhere in the UK, certainly as well. And I would highly recommend it because it really is a, a great book. And if you've not read Jeff Vandermeer before as well, I would say it's a good starting off point because it is a bit more accessible than some of his other stuff, I think.
0: Yeah, it's it's definitely one by, by the sounds of it. I mean, we chatted about this a little bit last week on how uh, Annihilation kind of starts off very strange and weird. And then once it kind of clicks, it really mm-hmm. grabs you. But by the sounds of it, Hummingbird Salamander's more of a kind of maybe a, a nice way to ease into his style of writing. Yeah,
1: definitely, way. definitely. So, yeah, thanks again to Jeff. Um But we also have another great guest next week.
0: We do indeed have a great guest next week, Mr. David David Bishop, or DV Bishop, perhaps, as he's also currently known, mm-hmm. uh, as is writing books and comic books as well. Okay. Yes, Prolific comic writer,
1: yeah. So his 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 book is uh, "City of Vengeance," which is a historical thriller set in Florence, um, which I have to say was right up my street in terms of a a setting and a a story. But um, he also was the editor of the Judge Dredd magazine and 2000 AD in the 90s, I think, as well. So we chat to him about you know his writing and how he managed to get those jobs, which, in fact. It was a very seemed a very easy <laughs> route into becoming the editor of these what you know are sort of um, landmark comic books in the UK.
0: Yeah, most of what we chat to seem to have a really convoluted you know year long process, and a couple of what we chat to, especially recently, seems to have just kind of got in their you know their dream route that everyone yeah. you know wishes was them. But it's, it's it's really interesting. It's also done a number of screenplays that he's. He's done well with in the page awards and mm-hmm. page awards are, are, are definitely something people should consider for the are writing screenplays. Yeah, we've yeah, we, quite highly ourselves mark with now.
1: We have, yes, indeed. Nice, Derek.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, we could we we'll chat a lot more about that next week, so please do tune in for that episode next week. And um before we go, I will as ever I will ask that if you enjoyed the episode, please do give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us to stay high in the charts and You know, we have recorded now 68 episodes of this podcast. In fact, we've recorded more, but released 68 episodes of the podcast. And getting these guests um, is because we've managed to build a momentum and a support and a loyal following. So it really helps us um, stand out from the crowd of podcasts if we can get a rating and a review. There's my begging for this week.
0: (laughs) And, of course, uh, my my own... uh plea to the listeners as always is if you want to get in touch with us you're always more than welcome to send us a an email which is a podcast at rightgear.co.uk or a twitter through the twitter machine which is at right underscore
1: gear a twitter
0: a twitter send us a twitter a Twitter.
1: <laughs> a, tw- tweet. a tweet tweet yeah send us something i'll, uh, I'll, I'll take anything <laughs> um but uh otherwise uh We hope you have a great week and we'll see you next episode. See you later.